If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What does it mean to go on pilgrimage? And what has driven people to take on these long and often dangerous journeys? In his book, Pilgrimage, Journeys of Meaning, the author Peter Stamford reflects on these questions considering whether modern pilgrimages share anything in common with those of the past. Emily Briffitt spoke to Peter to find out more. Hi Peter, it's lovely to be talking to you today. It's lovely to be here, thank you very much. I want to start by asking you, what do you think makes pilgrimage worth talking about? Pilgrimage has got the most enormously long history. We've been doing it, uh, you know, you can go all the way back to the Buddha in the 6th century BC, who went on effectively a pilgrimage in search of enlightenment and ended up sitting under the Bodhi tree and gained enlightenment. So there's this huge human history of pilgrimage, which I suppose also brings you around to another of the things that makes it worth talking about, is what exactly is a pilgrimage? Doesn't that just mean he went for a walk, or he went for a kind of, you know, a country walk, a yomp, whatever you want to call it, or does it mean he went on holiday? So it's what exactly is a pilgrimage as opposed to a journey, and and uh, I, I suppose what I, I think about that is that they're journeys of meaning, they have a particular meaning. And I suppose the other thing to say about pilgrimage at the moment, particularly as we come out of COVID and people start travelling again, is that a pilgrimage is this extraordinarily reviving thing. So if you think about religion, particularly in the Western world at the moment, uh, people have been writing obituaries for religion for a long time, for organised religion, particularly for Christianity. And it is entirely true um, in that people don't go to church as much as they did anymore, particularly amongst young people, little interest in organised religion. But I think focusing too much on the figures is dangerous because it doesn't tell you this broader thing. There's a difference between um, 
uh, organised religion and attendance and the badges of belonging. If you think about religion as about two things, believing and belonging. Um, so church attendance is kind of the ritual of, of the belonging thing. And I think people don't massively want to belong to things anymore or they don't want to make the compromises that come with belonging. I think quite a lot of people like the, the, the sense of believing and what religion can do. So they go in search of that. And pilgrimage is one of those things. So I'm talking in abstract terms. So I'll give you a very, very concrete example. In the mid-1980s, the Camino, the um, the ancient pilgrim's path, which went down originally from Paris over the Pyrenees across northern Spain to the town of Santiago de Compostela, St. James, Santiago St. James. It's where St. James, one of the apostles, is meant to be buried I mean, it's fairly fanciful, the idea that he's buried there. But anyway, it was a pilgrim route, huge in the Middle Ages. Marjorie Kemp went on, all those people went on it. So in the mid-1980s, the number of people still doing it was down to a couple of thousand. In 2019, the year before um, before COVID came along, there were about 350,000 people doing it. Hey, good for an extraordinary rise. What is that about? So here we are, we're living in these times where formal religious attachment is plummeting, and yet on the Camino, it's soaring. What's that about? So that's why, that's why I started writing, that's why I wrote this book, really. Why are people going on pilgrimage? So do you think there's been a shift in attitude then towards pilgrimage? One of the things that has happened with um, the decline of organised religion is it has left a gap. It is, it's left a, a place that we're at sea in. So one might broadly characterise the 20th century as being about science and technology. And what it told us was that science would give us all the answers. And science does. I mean, we've just had a COVID pandemic and the answer that science gave us was a vaccine. It's amazing. But... If you think of the big questions that people struggle about, and indeed it brings you back to COVID again, about suffering and loss and death, and we struggle with those ideas, and we struggle with the questions about the purpose of life and meaning, where do they find a forum where they can think about those things? A pilgrimage trail. Why a pilgrimage trail? Well, in a very uh, particular way, it's getting away from the world. Pilgrimage was always getting away from the world. If you think about the 15th century uh, pilgrimage uh, writer Marjorie Kemp, she had a husband and 14 children in Kings Lynn, and uh, she had always wanted to get away and have a bit of time to think. Uh, so her, uh, the book of Marjorie Kemp, really the first autobiography in the English language, um, tells her story of going off to all these different places I mean, she's a fairly comical figure. She's always weeping. But frankly, had I spent all that time looking after 14 children, I probably would have wept too. We've spoken about it a little bit there, about historically what inspired, what motivated people to go on pilgrimage. But I was wondering whether I can pick you up on that and could you tell us a bit more about that side of things? Yeah, so this the, the phrase that I use about pilgrimages, so I try to distinguish pilgrimage from tourism. So um, there are some people who say, oh, well, this boom in pilgrimage that you're talking about is just tourism. There is something that distinguishes pilgrimage from tourism, and it is this idea of people searching for meaning. You can search for meaning on all sorts of levels, consciously and uh, subconsciously, almost without knowing it. And I think if you look back at this history of pilgrimage, Judaism had a very strong tradition of 
well, they wouldn't particularly call it a pilgrimage at the time, but they were pilgrimages. You know, it's there in the New Testament. Jesus goes to the temple that people would go to the the first and second temple. And indeed, Jews still to this day go to the um, the Western Wall. In Christianity, if you look in, in the history of Christianity, um, St. Peter and St. Paul meant to have died, have been crucified in Rome in the AD 1660s, I think. And... Um, the, 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 at that stage, they were they were uh, they were supposedly crucified. The historical record is a bit unclear about this, but the, it was on the va- where the Vatican is now. It was outside the city of Rome. It was a pleasure garden, and there was a huge necropolis there as well, sort of pagan te- um, cemetery. And there was a grave put there for Saint Peter. We can find it's still the bits of it are left. The bits of graffiti. We know people in the second and first and second centuries were going there. It's why the church was built there. It's built on top of where his grave was. Um, uh, people were doing that. They were going on pilgrimages to go there. Uh, Constantine, who who brought Christianity, made Christianity a fi- the official religion of the empire, early fourth century. His mother. Um, uh, the Empress Helena went off to Jerusalem, rediscovered the holy places, but the first building of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre on where Calvary was meant to have been. People started flooding, and people were going to Jerusalem before that, incidentally. But but um, uh, that whole tradition of going on pilgrimage to Jerusalem uh, in Islam, you have it. Uh, it's it's actually a religious obligation. You go on the Hajj, you go on pilgrimage. It's a, we've been doing it. We've been doing it forever, really, and we've been doing it for meaning. We've been doing it within institutional religion. We've been doing it as a religious obligation, but we've been doing it. So I think it's a kind of revival of that tradition. And I suppose in a British context, it's an odd one, uh, because uh, pre-Reformation, we just had endless pilgrimage routes. I mean, you're literally tripping over them when you're going going around anywhere. So I spend quite a lot of time up in uh, North Norfolk. Uh, which are very, very close to Walsingham, one of the greatest Marian shrines of of medieval times. Every king from, I think, Edward III to uh, Henry VIII went there. Henry VIII went there when Catherine of Aragon gave birth to a son in thanksgiving for him having a son. Of course, the child then died. And uh, so he therefore decided in 1536 to dissolve the monastery. So bang goes Walsingham. But all those pilgrim routes are still there. And Walsingham was revived at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. Um, so, you know, when we first in Norfolk one Easter, across our little village green, we saw all these people walking across, carrying crosses. And you think, oh, that's a bit odd. You don't see that very often anymore. There isn't that tradition, particularly in British, uh, in, in British life uh, since the Reformation. It was seen as too Catholic, too flamboyant, all of those things. Um, uh, we've re- we're reviving that. The pilgrimage revival is seeing that happening. One of my favourite routes, and it's in it's in the book, uh, was the North Wales uh, pilgrim path, which was there. It follows all those wonderful Celtic saints. Starts at Holywell, uh, 7th century well, uh, where Winifred it's such a mad story, I can hardly bear to tell it. But anyway, I'm going to tell it because it's a good story. So Winifred was a uh, was a uh, a young princess, devoted her life to the Lord. Her uncle was Bueno, who uh, uh, was a, a great leader of the early church at that stage. Uh, but there was some lurking local prince who decided he wanted to have his wicked way with Winifred. And she said no, because she was saving herself for God. And he uh, got so cross with her, he cut her head off. Where her head fell on the ground, I'm not telling you this is literal truth. We can we can read this on all sorts of levels. Where her head hit the ground, a spring of holy water came forth. And then Bueno popped out, hearing her screams. Although if you can scream 
cream on your head's cut off, I don't really know. Um, anyway, put her head back on the top of her body. It'd be marvellous if we could all do that, wouldn't it? And um, and this became a healing shrine. And uh, so that is at the beginning of the North Wales Pilgrim Route. And at the very far end is the island of Bardsey. If you haven't been, go to Bardsey. Please go to Bardsey. It is wonderful. Bardsey is like a kind of whale, um, sort of, w- uh, with the with the kind of face facing the Abadaran, isn't it, at the end of the clean peninsula. Sorry if you're a Welsh speaker. It's meant to be where 20,000 Celtic saints were buried. That route was revived in the um, around 2008-2010 by people who'd been on the Camino. So you've got this spreading out Camino effect where people find meaning on the Camino and think, well, I don't have to go to Spain every time to get there. I'll do some other routes and see if I can find something. So it's a it's a whole sort of a pack of dominoes or whatever you want to call it, a story spreading around the world. It's fascinating. It's one of the things I was going to ask you, actually, was in your book you talk about Santiago de Compostela, mm. Jerusalem, Mecca, the Buddha Trail, Machu Picchu, the North Wales Pilgrim's Way, as you said, and that's just to name a few. But why do you think places like this have become such popular pilgrimage destinations? Is destinations the right word? Well, there's a whole argument about the destination and the route, really, isn't there? So most people will tell you when they've done a pilgrimage that the the journey there was the was the special time, and getting there was was uh, was a, a, a necessary sort of. Uh, conclusion point, but it was the the journey taught them more than the getting there. But I think the key thing in all of these places is pilgrimage routes and destinations have a special atmosphere, and that special atmosphere comes from history, very appropriately given the subject of this this whole podcast. It comes from history. It comes from walking along a route that people have walked along for 2,000, 5,000, whatever uh, years, and somehow something comes up from that route. I mean, clearly I'm not scientific, so I'm not suggesting this kind of a special ether in the soil that comes up through the soles of your shoes. But just walking there, there is something about the atmosphere around these places. Uh, one phrase that's often used of them is that they are thin places. The person who said it best was um, T.S. Eliot, who in Little Gidding, um, the final one of his four quartets, goes to Little Gidding, um, which was in the 17th century... Um, an Anglican religious community post-Reformation. They were trying to rediscover spirituality based around a small church there. And a whole set of rituals um, sort of uh, went out of existence after the um, after the Commonwealth. Um, so he went there to the church and he said, and I, can't, I, I, I could look it up in the book and read it and I'll misquote it and I can't read poetry anyway, but um, he talks about uh, you have to put aside sort of you know, reason and those things. It is about walking and praying where walking and praying has been valid. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And then they descend down into these network of passageways in the churches and you can look from above. And because the churches are quite small, not many of them fit in. So the whole thing is about standing outside the church in the in the kind of courtyard which is created by the pit and touching or bowing next to it it just blows your mind that this could that this could exist and that you could be part of it this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging 
so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. How has the popularity of pilgrimage affected the locals around the pilgrimage routes? Well, pilgrimage has always had a commercial point. And, 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 you know, abbeys used to earn their living by being next to pilgrim routes in medieval times. Walsingham was incredibly uh, commercially successful. And one of the wonderful things about going there now is because it was left effectively in cobwebs for about 400 years, when you walk up the high street, you've still got all the medieval buildings overhanging the street as you go up. I mean, they are, they're beautiful. It's extraordinary and obviously often used as film sets. You'll see it as the backdrop to all sorts of things. Um, so there was always a, a commercial side to it. And I think it, it, it works now, um, in that, uh, uh, you know, people have, have rediscovered it's a, it's a reason for doing it. Historically, has pilgrimage taken on different meanings for different faiths or, or for different places around the world? It's taken, I mean, historically, the, the meanings were different uh, in the past in that, uh, just to go to the, for the British example, when you would walk to Walsingham, for instance, um, you would go there for healing um, and there was a holy well. So the story of Walsingham in the 11th century was that the Virgin Mary appeared to a local woman called Richeldis and told her that she wanted her to build a replica of the holy house, i.e. the house that Jesus, Mary and Joseph lived in, in uh Nazareth and so she did and there was a well there and people used to go and it was a really big ritual of kind of healing and cure that's much less so now um, and I suppose the other thing about medieval pilgrimage was often to do with relics that you got you got to the place and you were in the presence of a relic uh, when you got there and that somehow just by being in its presence uh, you would you would get something out of it not a lot of that goes on anymore. I'm certainly not in this country. So I suppose there's a kind of a broader sense of healing now in terms of the meaning that it doesn't heal you particularly from physical ailments, but it's, and it doesn't really heal the things that you're worrying about because it is in our nature to worry about things, but it gives you a way of looking at them and, and getting them in some sort of perspective. That's a sort of form of healing too. And I think that's, that's often what people are doing. I wanted to pick up on something you said there about the actual practicalities of going on a pilgrimage. How did people plan to go on pilgrimage in the past? How could they deal with those practicalities? The practical, big deal, the practicalities um, in people's lives. And I mentioned Marjorie Kemp beforehand uh, and her pilgrimages. She had to uh, wait until she'd raised her 14 children to be allowed to go on pilgrimage that her husband wouldn't let her go before. Um, if you think of the wife of Bath in um, uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, um, you know, again, she had to she had to kind of wait for her moment to be able to go and do that. She had a really good time when she got there as well. Um, oh, and also, I think she's a good example. Pilgrimage can be really joyful. I mean, it can sound a bit penitential the way I'm describing it. Everyone kind of with furrowed brows thinking, I've got to find meaning, I've got to find meaning. I mean, they, they had a kind of pretty rowdy time. Um, 
the practicalities in medieval times were extraordinary in that, you know, if you took another of the routes, we've talked about the Camino, but let's talk about another one, the Via Francigena, uh, which is the route that led from Canterbury through through uh, France, over the Alps, the Great uh, St. Bernard Pass, uh, down through Italy to Rome. That was kind of like the M1 of the medieval period in that, you know, people... So if you got to be Archbishop of Canterbury, you had to go and get your pallium, the kind of stole the Pope gives you. Uh, you had to walk there. Uh, if you wanted to go and ask the Pope's advice on whatever kind of great act of state you were getting, you had to walk there. They were all walking backwards and forwards along this route. Um, and it was tough. You know, we, we call it a marathon now, and we ask people to sponsor us because we're, we're doing so well by doing it. They were doing it repeatedly. Um, so it was a really, really big practical thing. Um, and obviously along the roadside would be lots of abbeys and hostels and places that people could could stay. That's the commercial bit of it. Um, it's much easier for us now. And actually with some of the pilgrimage destinations, it gets it, it's so easy to do it in the 21st century. If you go to, when I went to Jerusalem, I'm afraid I flew there uh, just because it was easier. But I think in terms of the practicalities, the other one that we really ought to think about is the danger. The one of the elements in, in, in pilgrimage was that you put yourself at risk in order to do it. So um, some really obvious British examples of it. Um, Holy Island, Lindisfarne, I don't know if people know that, but um, I did that on Good Friday uh, with a group who carry across across, across. They carry a crucifix across um, in bare feet. So um, I, suppose, I suppose the other thing about pilgrimage is you want, you want to be extreme when you're doing it. So I did the bare feet, I did the walking across. Um, but the tide comes in, it's on mudflats at Lindisfarne, and, and the tide comes in and floods. Um, there's an element of risk, you could get your tides wrong and you could drown. But the one that really, really got me, so um, to, to cross the channel from the Clean Peninsula to Bardsey, you go through the Bardsey Strait, which the uh, the guy who takes you across on the boat, and people often say is the most treacherous bit of water in the United Kingdom because of the meetings of tides there. And that wonderful, wonderful Welsh poet of, 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 of flickering belief, R.S. Thomas, who did the journey lots of times, talks about all the pilgrims who drowned and were at the bottom of the channel munching grit. The first time I took my kids who were then, I don't know, five and seven, and we were going across. And as we were going across, I kept thinking about the pilgrims munching grit. And I think, why am I bringing my children to this place? Why am I putting them at risk? And I think it may just be part of the performance of it. But the boatman was saying, oh, I'm not sure we'll be able to get back later on. You may have to stay overnight on the island. I said, you haven't packed anything. I haven't brought any food. And we got there. Didn't even have chemical loose. Had these wretched toilets with kind of bits of grass in the bottom. I think, I don't want to stay here. Um, and there's a sense of putting yourself in jeopardy. It's all about how the, the very physical act of walking, in a sense, enables you over great distances to abnegate the body. It's part of that process of finding meaning. What do you think this history of pilgrimage can almost tell us about the wider history, maybe, of society? I think the history of pilgrimage tells us that we are we have always searched for some form of truth. We've always searched for some form of truth that is emotional and psychological and spiritual, as well as searching for scientific historical truth, that the, the two things often 
go hand in hand, but but often as well are separate. It is something, one of the things that interests me in my writing in general is these religious ideas that are sort of universal. It's interesting if you you can, and you can trace a line through religions where they they all endlessly borrow from each other. I mean, most organised religions have so much more in common than separates them. And I think pilgrimage is part of that. You see that tradition going on, as I say, from the Buddha, uh, through uh, uh, Judaism, through Christianity, through Islam. And you see it in other places. People are interpreting these things in different ways. I've looked at different ways. So, you know, there's a Hindu tradition of pilgrimage, which again is very, very wound up with commerce and markets. So the Kum Mela, which supposedly happens every 10 years, but they have it in so many different places, it happens in a whole, happens more often than 10 years. And it's a vast, vast gathering and the the uh, bathing in the water of the Ganges but all sorts of other things go on around it and interestingly if you look at its history uh, the history of Mellas which are sort of a combination of market and kind of spiritual meeting has been going on for a long time. Um, in a long time, he says rather vaguely. I mean, for many, many uh, thousands of years in Hinduism. And you see it in, in the kind of Buddhist tradition because of the Buddha. And then you see it in a, in a more modern traditions, more recent society traditions. And two of the places I go to in the book, in America, they don't really have a, a very strong tradition of pilgrimage. The one I found really fascinating was in Mormonism. Uh, because the whole story of Mormonism was in a sense of their repeated exile from where they started. They kept being driven out of all sorts of towns and they end up in Salt Lake City after they went along this pioneer trail out into Salt Lake City. But they'd also had this other really fascinating tradition of um, of uh, uh, pilgrimage there where Mormons once in their lifetime, in the same way that Muslims once in their lifetime, were meant to go to the place where... Um, Joseph Smith first received enlightenment where the angel came down with the golden tablets, which is in upstate New York. Um, uh, they would go and gather there and there would be a pageant since the, I think the 1930s. There's been a kind of pageant there, which wasn't searching for meaning. It was a sort of evangelistic thing in a way. And so they would do this great performance. So wh- when you went on pilgrimage with your family, you wanted to be part of that. The, the Mormons have stopped doing that literally in the last two or three years and not because of COVID for other reasons, because they felt that was a bit inward introspective now. And now they, uh, they're concentrating more on these kind of pioneer trails. So, you know, the, the idea of pilgrimage is evolving as well. And the, I suppose the final one to mention is Machu Picchu as well. The, the, that, that kind of Inca trail, the Incas built these astonishing kind of paths through the mountains, which almost have a transcendent quality to them simply because they've, they've survived. I mean, how did they build them and how have they survived all this time? And of course, Machu Picchu itself, where none of us can quite understand why it's there. So, we talked about danger, we talked about hardship, mystery. Mystery works really well on a pilgrim trail. So it's going on everywhere they, 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 in, in all sorts of different forms, but they all share these similar uh, elements, which are bigger than any institutional religion. Are there any particular routes that have particularly captured you? So if your budget is modest as all our budgets are going to be more modest now in these times of rising inflation. I would say there are plenty of pilgrim routes in this country that you that are being developed um, even as we speak. In Scotland, they have developed the Whithorn Way now. St Ninian in 397 came to Whithorn on the, on the Galloway coast. His cave is still there. 
And that used to be a great destination of pilgrimage. Mary, Queen of Scots, went, went there. All sorts of people went there. Um, they developed a route now that you can walk. And when you get there, there's a service outside his cave on the beach, which, of course, is unchanged because we can't change nature in that way, which is rather wonderful. The place that left the strongest impact on me, on the adult me, uh, was a place called Lalibela in Ethiopia. So what Lalibela is, it was built about the... Um, Eleventh, uh, twelfth century, they think uh, Lalibela was a king, uh, uh, an Ethiopian king. Ethiopia, uh, uh, an ancient historic kingdom. They were Orthodox Christians, and no one knows why he did it. We go back to that ele- element of mystery, which is so important as well in places. But they excavated great pits in the in the in the ground, and then they either built rock churches in the side walls of the pit, which is which are quite interesting. They excavate into these great red sandstone-looking uh, pits, but they didn't take everything out of them and then build something in it. They, he- they kept a lump of rock in the middle and they built a church out of it. And the, the most impressive one is St. George. It's a cross-shaped church. And uh, it is entirely hewn out of the rocks, but it looks like a, a sort of, it's, it, it's a building, it's got windows. You go in, it has seats, it's quite tiny. And at dawn, what happens there, it's, it is the place for Ethiopian Orthodox Christians to go, and there are several millions of them. Uh, they wear white, they wear these extraordinary white um, garments, and they walk um, across these kind of, this dusty high plain. And when they get there, you can't see the churches. It looks like they come somewhere flat. And then they descend down into these a network of passageways in the churches. And you can look from above. And because the churches are quite small, not many of them fit in. So the whole thing is about standing outside the church in the, in the kind of courtyard, which is created by the pit, and touching or bowing next to it. And it's just it just blows your mind that this could that this could exist and that you could be part of it. And I suppose the other reason for mentioning it, and, and it, it isn't a place that I'd recommend you go at the moment, um, because there is a terrible war going on in, in, in Tigray, um, in Ethiopia at the moment. But many, many people are dying there of starvation around, which feels a particular what, 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 uh, terrible thing crying out that this is going on around such sacred soil. But it is an extraordinary extraordinary place Lalibela and I I can't recommend it highly enough in happier times That was Peter Stanford His book Pilgrimage Journeys of Meaning is out now published by Thames and Hudson Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley 